Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, I, I've wanted to have Will Chamberlain on for quite some time, but because of various affiliations of his, his he couldn't come out and speak uh, publicly just um, about a bunch of issues. But Will has been at the forefront of convincing me about many things. Um, I think he was one of the, the first people that I ever heard talking, um, along with Rachel Bovard, talking about big tech in a serious way um, and, and about its threat to both conservatism and representative government um, in a serious way. We're talking, you know, 2017, 2018, 2019, well before almost anyone I knew, at least, was, was talking about the issue in that way. Uh, but just to briefly introduce him, Will Chamberlain is senior counsel at the Internet Accountability Project. Um, he's also with the Article 3 Project, um, which deals with constitutionalist judges and supporting constitutionalist judges and assaults on judicial independence. So uh, he's well familiar of law with lawfare. Um, and I wanted to talk to him again about some of the things he's been at the forefront of um, so let's let's start with actually let's start with big tech because there is this big um, sort of expose on Disney, which uh, and, and and the special benefits that Disney was apparently using in Florida, um, almost like a, a parallel state or, or parallel like at least municipality, weirdly, um, and and using that municipality to to gain all kinds of perks and maybe talk us through a little bit of what the setup was and how this is, uh, to some extent, even if not in specifics, in attitude, sort of representative of so many red states uh, and what they've offered large corporations, which have then turned around and basically supported policies that were in direct contradiction to what those red state voters wanted. Yeah. So um, I wouldn't say that the Disney issue is necessarily a big tech issue, obviously, but it is a corporate right. welfare issue. Uh, more generally connecting those two things without being explicit about it. Sorry. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, there, you know, there's, there's some, there's some overlap, but it's definitely, a, you know, the big tech issue is actually less corporate welfare in my view and, and more an actual conservative case for affirmative regulation, right. Which you don't see too many of. Um, and is a certainly historically like not very common on the conservative side, but anyway, so, so, but Disney, fair enough. Um, Basically, in order to get Disney to build Disney World, or rather that, you know, Walt Disney and his team negotiated with the state of Florida, um, one of the most generous corporate welfare packages imaginable, which effectively in the process, you know, Disney itself bought up a whole bunch of land in central Florida near Orlando and got itself negotiated itself with the state, um, effectively its own city, you know, municipal government that it was completely in control of. Um there was some talk at the time about, oh, well, Disney will, you know, build a real city here and there will be homes. And so it won't be completely, you know, the park and the corporation, but they had no, they never ended up doing that. And it was pretty clear that they had no real self-interest in doing it because if they actually had homes and normal citizens living there, those citizens would have had a stake and a say in the government. And Disney didn't want that. Disney wanted complete control of the local regulations of its own parks understandably so from their perspective, but it's a totally novel arrangement and very alien to the way municipal government works out, out elsewhere. And so you get this sort of pure corporate local government um, that allows the, you know, Disney itself to get away with all sorts of shenanigans. And, you know, we're just, there was just an audit that came out that revealed a number of the shenanigans included, uh, you know, Disney handing out tick free tickets to the parks to members of the board those were never reported as compensation or something they they took back it was just like here you know go to the park and it just one of many ways in which disney ensured that the you know the government um that was controlling its area was going to do exactly everything it wanted and i don't think you know I, I think the disney case is one where you've seen some politicians like nikki haley who i, I will repeatedly criticize whenever i get a chance to because getting really tired of hearing about all her terrible ideas. But Nikki Haley, when, you know, Governor DeSantis, who just full disclaimer, I worked for very recently, I was on his campaign and then in his office um, at the Capitol. So the affiliations are referred to at the beginning, he, you know, right. once you join a campaign, you're not allowed to sort of speak on your own behalf. So uh, I've been wanting yeah. to ask Will questions about this for a long time, but uh, right. he, was, he um, was on behalf of the campaign. So exactly. Yeah. You don't, you don't get to speak for yourself. That's the trade-off you make. Um, but anyway, uh, so what, I mean, I'm, you know, Governor DeSantis did an amazing thing by, you know, 
actually taking a look at this and saying, well, we don't we don't need this anymore. And, and Disney's also an obnoxious corporation that is trying to, you know, wade into, you know, our politics and, you know, wade into our laws dealing with K through three education. Um, and they're an obnoxious company. And now we look at this absurd, you know, arrangement that they have in Orlando. No company in, in our state should have an arrangement like this. Um, regardless of all the other stuff. And so I think I think Governor DeSantis did a very good thing in terms of uh, actually taking the fight to Disney. And, and I'm glad that we have this audit and now we see what this relationship is actually like. Yeah. Um, what 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 is your opinion of whether... So I, I've talked to Nate Hawkman about this and a couple other people who have, for example, Nate reported uh, extensively on the relationships with uh, Governor Kirstie Nome and uh, large corporations in her state. You know, what is the feeling that you have being having watched this for a long time and this sort of corporate relationship between Republican Party in red states and large corporations, which maybe, uh, you know, 20 years ago was um, was sort of a, a mutually uh, politically beneficial relationship, but now seems very much not to be. Um, what is the path forward? Because it seems like we have a couple governors, Florida, maybe Texas, right, in, in these big states that have big diversified economies who kind of have a little bit of the FU power, right? They can they can tell a big, you know, Florida can tell a big corporation to screw mm-hmm. off um, in a way that's not possible for South Dakota um, or any number of small red states, what do you think? Obviously, this is something that Republican voters um, by in every poll really support. So this is one of those things where Republican voters are way out in front of the Republican Party in terms of understanding uh, the political role that a lot of these corporations are actually playing. Um, that being said, I do as much as I, I sort of personally cringe and, and don't like to see Republican governors bend the knee to you know, my 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 reaction to that viscerally is much more like what Elon Musk said to the, the people boycotting X, right? Um, a big F you, right? Uh, that being said, I can understand why the governor of a small state feels that she has to or he has to bend to those kinds of demands. Because um, what if you're talking about, you know, 10 or 20 percent of the jobs in your state? And if there's some kind of corporate boycott, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, anyway, I understand why there are pressures in the other direction, even beyond the obvious sort of cringing, weak-spined Republican thing. So, you know, where do you think this fight is going uh, in, like, let's say the next five to ten years? Do you think the Republican Party is going to be solidified as sort of an anti-corporate party? Or uh, do you think that we are going to see, especially if, if election results don't go our way, for example, in 2024, we're going to see a return to the relationship between corporations in the Republican Party, particularly as what goes a little bit less obvious in these corporations? I mean, I don't think, I think fundamentally Republicans are not naturally an anti-corporate party, right? We're, we're ne- generally the, the, you know, a pro-business, pro, you know, economy focused party in a lot of ways. Historically, we've been that way, um, which is what led to this bizarre incentive structure where, because we were so reliably pro-corporate on the right, the companies only looked to please the left, right? They weren't thinking about the need to, to keep the Republican Party on side because we just would be. And so they've um, gone against the need. They focus on the need to please the left. I think you've seen some correction in that regard, especially as a result of the efforts of people like Governor DeSantis, um, where you know a lot of these businesses are starting to realize they don't want to wade into culture war battles. We want to discipline that and continue that you know, pushing that forward more. Um, I think in terms of protecting these smaller states, it obviously is about creating collective action among Republican states. And there already is a decent amount of good collective action in the legal world. Like they, the various attorneys general of Republican states do a good job of coordinating when they're going to get involved in cases, for example. But we just need to increase that, right? Like if 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 one of these companies threatens a South Dakota or a Christie Nome and says, you know, do this hor- ridiculous leftist thing or we leave, there needs to be an overwhelming response from all Republican states generally and all the Republican attorneys general. That's like, you know, oh, we heard that you, Mr. Fortune 500 Corporation, are threatening our small state. Well, guess what? We're, we, you know, we have sovereign power. You don't. And, you know, what we can do with sovereign power, investigate you for criminal infractions. Like there just needs to be this attitude that's like you don't get to disrespect our party. Right. I think that 
fundamentally what the old school Republican Party allowed is for corporations to disrespect Republican voters. And, and that's just got to stop. Right. I don't want a world where, the, you know, their corporations are just forced to say exactly whatever we want to. I want them to, to conduct their business. But in a, the, the world where all, you know, the major Fortune 500 companies and all the major media companies are like laser focused on ensuring they don't displease the left and ignore our concerns entirely. That's a terrible world. And it's a terrible world for our policies and for our constituents more generally. Yeah, I mean, it, it really just does seem like uh, they're getting they're getting to choose the best from column A and column B, right? They're they're mm -hmm. choosing to place their businesses in low regulatory, low tax Republican states. Sometimes, like our kicking off point here, beyond just general low tax and low regulation. On top of that, there are nice little bennies and special favors and tax carve outs here. I'm also thinking, for example, of uh, Delta in in Georgia, that where the Republican mm -hmm. legislature um, over voting. Um, voting rights and and something that the legislature was passing to to protect um, and, and fortify the election as as uh, as the left says <laughs> no um, to to protect voting rights and voter ID and so forth. Uh, there was mm -hmm. this attempt to um, punish economically punish Georgia, where the Republican Party told Delta mm -hmm. basically to screw off, and if you continue to um, you know, mess with us in this sort of economic boycott way, we are going to revoke these special tax benefits that we have created for to that made you know, Atlanta, mm -hmm. uh, this this Delta hub. Um, but you're right. I mean, I, th I think those kinds of battles will be much easier to fight collectively, because right now, really, what corporations are able to do is play off one red state that is going to war with them over something like this versus another low tax, low regulatory state. I mean, really what they have, they, they should be, they should be forced to choose. Do they want to live on, in Elizabeth Warren world? Or do they mm -hmm. want, as you say, to respect Republican voters, right? Um, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's one reason why Nikki Haley doing the thing where she went on television to talk about how she would invite Disney to come to her state was so obnoxious because there should be intra-Republican solidarity when it comes to fights that they're dealing with these corporations that are messing with our voters. And for any for Republican governors to be fighting against each other and trying to take advantage of disputes happening in other states is extraordinarily disloyal and bad for our party and bad for our voters. Like she should, she did not get enough heat for that. It, it was a really obnoxious thing for her to do. She did hear, she did get it from me um, for exactly those reasons. It's, it's like going back to 2012, right? Misunderstanding. You're not trying to poach this company from a fellow mm -hmm. red state. Um, we, we do need some kind of, <laughs> I guess we need to yeah. learn a little bit from the left. We need some kind of collective solidarity, a collective yes. bargaining on, on, on the behalf of, uh, of red states. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, what's the word for people who strike, who cross, who cross. Oh, no scabs. Yeah. Yeah. No scabs. Yeah. No scabs. <laughs> Nikki Haley's a scab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there was a lot of that. It's, it's not just mm -hmm. Nikki Haley. It's just, it, it is this older mentality of, yeah, of course. I mean, any, a pre- let's say 2012 or, or um, 2010 world, it made more sense, right? You, you want your um, you want your economy to be growing faster. You want to be offering a better deal to every corporation. Um, and here I'm thinking about California and Nevada a decade and a half ago did a very funny flame war back and forth about like what was the better business environment. And they, the um, tourism boards of those two states were going at it and just criticizing each other about a thousand things. Uh, it was very funny, but you know, there is this constant competition between states for business and it makes sense. And it's part of the free market economy mm -hmm. and so on. But uh, what we really do need here is an anti-scab mentality in some of these corporate battles. Um, mm -hmm. How, how does recent Supreme court or how do or recent Supreme court rulings change this? Um, because to the extent the corporations, of, I, I don't have one off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I I'll, I'll explain in a moment, but um, it seems like the most overt cultural commitments of corporations um, ran through things like affirmative action and mm -hmm. having, uh, you know, diversity hiring and so on. Uh those things are necessarily going to be pulled back, at least in some percentage of companies that are afraid uh, of the potential that they do run afoul of our uh, civil rights law. It seems like in addition to that, we've had this awakening after October 7th by a certain percentage of 
people in whether big law firms or just generally in the corporate environment who, I mean, I think hilariously or, or disappointingly now all of a sudden are shocked with the, the sort of direction um, of, of university campuses and, and of their own junior staff members. Um, it, there does seem to be an environment coming together for a little bit of a pullback on some of the most overt cultural um, sort of stands that that corporate America has taken very, very strongly. And I would add to that, actually, you know, the, the boycotts of, of um, Disney and Bud Light, uh, Target to a lesser extent, right? So th- there has been this pushback, partially engineered by Republican governors and actually using their sovereignty, as you say, partially backlash among um, both Republican and moderate voters. And now, finally, a changing legal structure around affirmative action and the surprise of a lot of uh, moderate liberals to see that their party is marching in the street for Hamas and particularly a lot of moderate Jewish liberals, right? So all of that to me adds up to an environment where some of this stuff will go underground in the corporate environment um, or in the corporate world. One, do you think that that's going to be a meaningful pullback or do you think it'll just be a kind of a simmering under the surface and a continuation of a lot of these policies? And two, how do you think it's going to play into this longer fight between red states um, and corporate power used on behalf of the cultural left? I think there actually will be a reasonably meaningful pullback here. And the reason I say that is because is of two things that I saw in the news. The, the first is, you saw a lot of big law firms, even liberal law firms, start end their diversity programs. And I think what they simply did is they just asked some of their attorneys to, you know, give them a research memo that says, is this going to, would this survive legal scrutiny in the aftermath of the Harvard v. SSFFA decision? And the answer I saw that they were all getting is no, none of these things are legal. Um, they're all racially discriminatory. And so they're all going to have to end. And then the second thing I saw was, you see news about, you know, diversity officers, people who are getting hired for diversity officer positions, having a hard time finding new jobs. And that's a that's a very good indicator because it means that, you know, while there might still be these diversity officers at various places, they're not they're not adding positions in that field. Uh, companies are trying to subtract and it's hard to fire people. Generally, you're not inclined to fire people as a corporation. One of the things people don't take for granted is, you know, you know firing is not fun. So no, generally there's some stickiness, like even if, you know, you don't really need a diversity office anymore, or that that office might be destructive. It'll take time for that to filter through the economy in terms of really eliminating all of these jobs. But I suspect that over time, you're just going to see a lot of people who were formerly chief diversity officers or working in the DEI division of these companies just suddenly not be able to find a position because the departments are closed everywhere because the basic ideology underpinning those divisions and their raison d'etre doesn't exist anymore. Like, oh, your job is to make sure that we have the right racial composition of employees. Well, if we did that, then we would get sued. And the fact we even have a department, you know, trying to rejigger that quota properly would get us sued. So we're just, you're, you are superfluous. Like your, your function doesn't need to be here anymore. So I think that is, there's nothing like lawsuits to discipline a lot of these companies, uh, especially just easily avoidable lawsuits. If they can fire someone to avoid a lawsuit, that's a, that's a win-win, <laughs> right? You save money on the salary and you save money on the, on the litigation fees and the judgment. So that's what I, I actually do expect a, a somewhat meaningful pullback in corporate America as a result of these cases and the general thrust of the law. I would not be surprised to see CYA American uh, sort of, suing culture what's the what's the word for that like a litigate like litigious litigious yeah litigious uh nature of of cya and and american corporations finally working in our favor uh yeah more powerful force than a lot of people are anticipating and it's sort of one of my one of my broader long-term theses about like a big opportunity the conservatives have missed for a long time largely because we've been so pro-corporate is that the trial lawyers have always hated us Right. We've the trial lawyers have always been Democrat donors and it's Democrats who have passed laws on their behalf. But to me, there's no reason why that has to be true. There's no reason why implicitly trial lawyers have to be a phenomenon of the Democrat Party. They're going to be a phenomenon of any party that's more antagonistic to corporations, obviously, because they sue corporations. That's how they make their money. But in a world where we find ourselves just as antagonistic to corporations, maybe not quite as, but reasonably antagonistic to corporations, 
there's plenty of opportunity for us to be passing laws that kind of create private rights of action for citizens against corporations that are mistreating them um, and discriminating against them. And, and we should be doing that and trying to use trial lawyers as a weapon to achieve our policy ends the same way that the left does. How does how does this optimistic picture balance against demographics and political demographics in the United mm -hmm. States? Um, I'm not even talking about racial demographics, although we could do that as well. Um, but it seems to me particularly among the elite, let's say the hiring pool for a Fortune 500 firm or for um, a, a white shoe law firm in New York or D.C., right? The 25-year-old Harvard graduate, that pool of people is only trending much further to the left, mm -hmm. right? So you're going to have a situation where you have essentially Gen X C-suite of some of these corporations perhaps optimistically, um, every, if everything that you're saying turns out to be true and important in terms of corporate culture, you're going to have a massive clash between the C-suite, mm -hmm. between the, the senior partners and firms and so on, um, and the people they've hired, let's say generously, that are 30 and under from elite universities. And how do you think that that, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously asking you to speculate wildly, but it seems to me that there are two trains going in two different directions. Now that's encouraging to me because previously I saw all the trains going in the same direction. And so a clash is already better than a lot of the dire predictions I had about America, let's say a year ago. But if there is going to be a clash, how are they going to maintain their hiring and their talent and, and retain a lot of the, the associates or whoever who are 30, 35 and under um, while essentially pulling out in many ways from the woke political game? Well, well, there's, I mean, the simple answer is because those people are in huge amounts of debt and need to pay it off. So, you know, we, you know, if we, as thank you to the law schools for gouging. Look, a positive um, consequence students. of student loan debt. Yeah, for gouging those students and forcing them into big law for a period of time to, to pay off their enormous debts. Um, that said, I think, you know, there's a, there's a question about, you know, I mean, obviously, there's this pushback going on at Harvard and other places on on their ideology that you're you're seeing like the the thing about anti-Semitism waking everybody up, but uh, there's also a dynamic where a lot of these elite universities are giving up on things like standardized testing uh, and moving away from actually trying to get like the elite minds in the country and instead just you know letting people tell their stories, um, pro you know, and that actually might accelerate as a continued reaction to. Uh, Harvard v. SSFA, SFFA, like if, if they're not allowed to overtly discriminate on behalf of racial minorities, then they like, you know, basically if, if the standardized testing regime doesn't create the kind of diverse class that they want, they might just get rid of it entirely. Um, and if they do that, then that brings into question whether these are elite universities at all. Um, and I saw another study saying that, you know, basically 80% of the kids are getting A's in, you know, whatever subject at Yale or Harvard or whatever the grading is not that intense. So I think it could see just a complete reorganization where, you know, if, the, if, the, if these elite universities don't take seriously the need to ensure that their brand means something in terms of the preparation that their students have for the workforce, I think you could see just a paradigm shift entirely where you're not, you know, large companies and serious Fortune 500 companies aren't looking to the Ivies for their graduates. They're looking at the state schools and they're looking for, you know, top grades at smaller private schools, that sort of thing. Um, well, in part, that doesn't encourage me as much as it should, because those schools are also ideologically captured. They're mm -hmm. not necessarily as loud about it in a certain way, but um, I, I have not agreed with folks that I generally agree with in our little circle of the right when they say, oh, you're less likely to be in a woke campus if you go to U Texas, for example. That, that has not true. been what I, I observed. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's, it, it's difficult to gauge exactly. But I mean, for example, Yale has a, a pretty thriving um, conservative underbelly, let's call it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and some of these state schools do not. I think if you go all the way down to community college, there's just less political activism, period. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you go into that fat middle of, of so to me, this is not necessarily uh, 
the the kind of solution that people are pointing to um just to to only I mean that's true there's there I mean there's just a general problem with you know the colleges broadly speaking being captured by the left um and getting more and more radical um I mean there are some fixes to it I don't know if we we need to do it but uh in general, I mean, I, one of my favorite policy ideas that I don't know if somebody will ever do, but I think it, it just, you need to make, make it a part of employment law. You're just not allowed to people, you're allowed to ask people about where they, you know, about their bachelor's degree or their possession of a bachelor's degree or lack thereof, right? Like they should have to demonstrate skills and it, because, you know, cause there's a lot of questions as an employer, you're not allowed to ask an employee, a potential employee when you're hiring them. Um, right. And so you can just add this to the list. It's like, you're just not allowed to ask that question. And, and all of a sudden, then it becomes, okay, this is no longer about signaling. It's about, can you demonstrate, you know, the employer, the employee has to demonstrate skills beyond the credential, the, the BA credential that they earn. Um, that would radically change the job market. I don't, I mean, I don't really know how to fix this problem. It's, it's in the sense of like, what would actually be politically possible in the near term. Um, but, you know, overt hostility to the university system is still a good thing. I know, I know some people have tried to say that it's like, well, we need to generate our own elite. And I want to say, okay, but, you know, we need, if we're going to end up doing that, you know, we need to have new institutions or completely capture some of these old ones, because right now it's a total, total mess and a total dystopia. And if you're just going to support a continued pushing of our elite into institutions that are totally captured by wokeness, a huge chunk of those kids are going to come out woke. And the others are going to have a horrible time. So, yeah, no, I'm definitely with you on that divide. Um, thinking about, and I've, I've also thought some about how to deal with the university requirement. And the, the first sort of background principle, um, when I'm talking to, to the right about this or to the left, you have different issues, but mm -hmm. um, is the idea that this is, this is somehow uh, the result of some kind of, free market equilibrium meritocracy uh when when the result is it's it it is a series of very direct and interfering policy choices uh since the great society that have given universities the kind of market power combined and this is where um i, I very much agree with your sort of speculation about uh, whether employers should be able to use university degrees um combined with essentially cutting off many other ways in which employers are allowed to evaluate those people who apply for their positions, right? And here we can talk about civil rights law and the EEOC. Because when you when you talk about, well, let's forbid universities from doing this, you don't need legislation to do that. All you need is the EEOC to declare disparate impact, which of course, everything has a racial disparate impact, including university degrees. But what's what's happened in the last really 20 to 30 years mm -hmm. has been that the university degree and a, a associated escalating debt, which has been a real problem now for two generations, has replaced basic uh, testing of basic skills and competencies. All mm -hmm. a bachelor's degree now means to employers is this is someone who can probably show up on time who has certain ability to sit in an office and complete tasks. It, I mean, very vanishingly few industries are now using bachelor's degrees as any particular set of skills. I mean, there are exceptions, obviously, to this. There's mm -hmm. engineering and et cetera, et cetera. But the vast majority of employers now are not using a bachelor's degree that, as, as an indication that an applicant has a list of particular skills. They assume that they're going to be teaching those skills. Um, what they are screening for are, is basic competency. Um, yeah. You are a person who can show up. Now, there is a real argument that, forget about racial discrimination, that that is a, a deeply elitist phenomenon. Because what you're actually telling a, a kid graduating from high school, let's say in working class America, is you have to take out $80,000 in debt to prove that you're basically competent instead of taking a single test or a series of tests that maybe cost you $200 or $300 as opposed to the $80,000 in four years of your life, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a minimum amount. That's $80,000 in four years of your life at like a generous state school. You know, that's still, it's a huge amount of money and time. Yeah, well, especially when you consider living expenses and all of the ways in which which colleges make money. Um, by the way, 
Will and I are probably the two uh, most prominent proponents of taxing universities, I think. Um, and one of yeah, the you're, I, I'm for seizing them. You want to tax them. I want to seize them. Like, <laughs> I, I treat all that money like as fraudulently money. obtained and want to one, seize it. One of, one of the most, uh, yeah, Will, Will's catchphrase is seize the endowments. But uh, one of the most, um, I think, obvious loopholes to close is that universities make a ton of money off of non-academic businesses on their campus. Mm -hmm. So even if you have, just to, to show how favorable, we started this out with Disney and their special municipal perks. I mean, universities have the same thing, but in spades, you can literally open a Starbucks on a university campus and that Starbucks uh, is considered tax free. If it's on the campus, it's part of the university, right? Um, so in many cases, in many states, that is not a taxable income. That's not a taxable business, right? Even though it's obviously it's not what we think of as as the product that universities are producing. Right. And I mean, again, I mean, it just goes to like, what should our law do? Well, our law should subsidize those things we think are truly valuable. And I mean, I'd like to be in a world where we all agreed that the universities were providing educations to students that were truly and obviously valuable. But I don't I don't think that's true. <laughs> I think that in many ways they're a racket, um, especially when they leave kids so much in debt and without having dramatically improved their job prospects. I mean, any other industry you took. You take oh, half the kids, you put them $150,000 in debt. You're marketing this product to eight, 18 year olds and 50% of them aren't better off at the end of it than they were when they started. I mean, the FTC would shut that industry down. So, I mean, we, we take for granted that everybody needs to go to universities. And in general, I think, I mean, this is, this has improved a lot, but I think, you know, we still need to get to the point where conservatives stop donating to their alma maters, unless they're confident their alma maters are actually doing a decent job um, and not putting out you know, not leaving their students worse off than when they started. This really goes to how a society, and it's related to the conversation we've been having so far, but how a society distributes honors. Um, mm. And there is a large point or part of this that is that and not dollars and cents, right? Because universities, there's two claims, one completely laughable at this point and one half laughable, right? The, the laughable claim is that they're producing wiser citizens and that's why we should be pouring all of this money into the university system. I think the majority and not just conservatives, I mean, virtually independents are virtually um, aligned with Republicans in polls on this. They do not trust mm. universities. They don't think that universities are making wiser citizens. Um but the second piece is still half and half, which is the economic proposition of um, of going to university. Wages for people with bachelor's degree have stagnated um, over time. Mm -hmm. So your, your, your lifetime earnings are still substantially more than somebody who doesn't have a bachelor's degree. Um, but those two lines are coming awfully close to each other because the cost of university has, has uh, escalated so far. Um, and the benefits of having a degree economically have stagnated that, the, you know, essentially if you're watching, you can see my hands mm -hmm. going, these two lines are, are starting to come awfully close to each other. Um, a very different proposition than say in 1983, um, yeah. the value of a degree in 1983. So those two things are dying out. But the thing that's hard to kill is the prestige. Yeah. Right? There's this sort of ineffable effable, uh, part of saying that, oh, I sent my kids to Harvard. And, and that's really difficult, even on the right, to kill. I mean, then, as you say, the number of people who will donate large sums of money to Donald Trump or to the Republican Party um, and then turn around and donate an equal or greater sum of money to Harvard University so they can put their uh, their name on the door of, of a building um, is is very high uh, and and even harder to deal with is just parents want the best for their children and they still think sending them to Harvard is going to set them up for the, the yeah. best life and that's really really hard to shake I mean it, it is and and I mean that does and it's true that the general hostility to universities that I advocate doesn't account for the need to have like you you do want you know a credential elite that can go work in the government and go work in high places and, and, you know, be fluent in the way everybody's talking there. And, um, you want those things and it would be a lot better if these, you know, a place like Harvard was functioning the way we want it to function. That's why, you know, I hope that people like Bill Ackman are successful in trying to purge the rot and hopefully like one or two of these places, you know, we don't need much. It, it's sort of, it's amazing. And you know, I was a, you know, long-term advocate of, you know, getting rid of social media censorship and laws regulating the big social media companies to ensure that conservatives have a right to speak on them. Um, so one of the things that got the libertarians angry at me. 
Uh, and then Elon Musk spent $44 billion and bought Twitter. That's not really a free market at work. It's sort of a deus ex machina um, solving the problem <laughs> of social media market. censorship. Deus, <laughs> well, not even de deus ex billionaire, no, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's not really the market. It's, you know, one billionaire decided free speech was really important. And thankfully he was the richest person in the world and could just buy the company outright. Um, but that one, but the, the funny thing is that Elon's purchase of Twitter has made social media censorship a much less salient issue in American politics. Um, it was much more, you know, it was a very, very salient issue for a period of about four to five years between roughly 2017 and 2022. Um, and since Elon purchased it, it's just much less salient because no matter what, unless you're just a way far out on the way far out on the fringe, you know, you're not getting banned from Twitter. Like the number of people who are still, you know, banned from Twitter over ideology is probably like 10 or something. Uh, it's not high. And as a result, you know, that that issue isn't that salient anymore. And, you know, because the problem is effectively solved. As long as you can speak on the on Twitter, which is one of the most central platforms in the country, it's like, okay, well, if I don't have Instagram, eh, not the word, not the end of the world. Similarly, if we actually just have one big prestigious university, just one that was in control of the right as a faction broadly, not by the academic left, by the right. If we just had one, it would solve all the problems. It would solve all the problems because it would mean that like you could steer young conservative leaning kids to that prestigious university and ensure that they got properly credentialed. A few thoughts on that. One, I do think in the medium term, not the short term, in the medium term though, Hillsdale is becoming that. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you look at the numbers and the way that they've been able to, because Hillsdale, even 10 or 20 years ago, was just as excellent a school as it is today in terms of the professorate and the people mm -hmm. that they could hire and the, the kind of education that you, that was available. I mean, I've always been really jealous of, of my colleagues who went to Hillsdale or um, mm -hmm. the, the kind of ed education that's available there has always been excellent. But the student body in terms of SAT scores or um, GPA, mm -hmm. any kind of assessment, the student body has been getting, it's, it's way harder to get into now um, than it was 10 years ago. I mean, it's it, the, the, their ability to be elite and selective uh, has just increased by leaps and bounds in the last. And decade. yeah, it's the kind of thing we wouldn't see yet because that's just happened in the last few years. Right. So like the, the, the downstream effects of that where Hillsdale graduates are just like this, like obviously elite kind of group of people um, that we, I mean, not, not in Seoul Hills, obviously current Hillsdale graduates are wonderful and Hillsdale alums are great. I'm and and they are politically them. focused in a way that yeah. I, I think on the right Hillsdale graduates do have uh, that kind of, of elite, mm -hmm. at least let's say half of what Harvard does. Um, but they have been focused on politics. And like, the question is when a engineering grad from Hillsdale or a literature grad from Hillsdale, right, has the same kind of cachet as, as having a Harvard degree that they obviously haven't achieved that yet. But I mean, I am hopeful uh, that they, they right. will in the future, particularly, as you say, the, the our current crop of elites schools are moving away from any kind of meritocracy. Mm. Um, so that's that's a medium-term hopeful bit. And um, the other thing, and I'm just spitballing now um, without thinking too far ahead about this, but it occurs to me, so I, I went to a, a kind of second tier, I guess. Uh, it, it's in the first tier of, of, you know, U.S. World News Report kind of stuff, but comparatively to, to the Ivy League or Harvard, I went to UCSD, um, University of California. Oh, that's way better than I did. I went to University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, so you, you did better I, than I me. I know that school. Um, yeah. I say that like because I think a lot of people don't because it's a California thing, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, they were the last. UCSD was the last to to go on the full affirmative action train. Of course, affirmative action is forbidden in California. Prop two hundred nine recently mm -hmm. reaffirmed, even in liberal California, people do not like racial preferences. That being said, obviously they have been practicing racial preferences. Uh, they have not stopped since Proposition two hundred nine was passed many years ago. Um, and UCSD was the last of the UC system, which at the flagship includes Berkeley, right, um, to move to so-called holistic review. And I, I kind of thought they were doing this. Um, basically, they admitted a lot of high, uh, high-performing Asian students. UCSD mm -hmm. whites are a smaller minority than than smaller plurality. I guess Asians are the plurality. When I was attending mm -hmm. there, um, whites were a relatively small minority, um, and they clearly were using that to 
juke themselves in the ranking, right? Um, to come mm. at one point when I was there, they were nipping on the heels of UCLA in terms of the the rankings. Um, when when US World News Report was taking the average SAT score and the average GPA, right? They were clearly using it to boost themselves. And then of course they succumbed to the pressure after several years after I left anyway. Um, but I wonder if there's any of that if that competitive nature can be used, like I wonder if there are second tier uh, Ivies or second tier right behind those those elite universities that if the Ivy League goes uh, so strongly in this anti-meritocratic direction that might want to use it. Of course, that relies on SAT, GPA, any kind of objective measure um, becoming or, or remaining uh, part of the evaluation of U.S. World News Report, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't know. I wonder how much there's some of that. Right now, it's the opposite, where the the most woke schools, mm -hmm. I'm convinced, in the entire terrible U.S. higher education sector are schools like Reed, Occidental, Brown, and they distinguish themselves by being even more insane politically yeah. than Yale and Harvard. Yeah, no, it's yeah, Oberlin. <laughs> Things like just laughable places. Occidental um, College, which I believe Obama went to. Yeah, I mean, you you can you, read is a great example of one of these places. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. Um, there's it does indeed rely on the U.S. news continuing to, to not, itself not being swallowed by wokeness, which I don't know the details of how U.S. news still ranks undergrads. Um, and if they still take seriously, like how rigorous things are and if they aren't over, you know, if their metrics aren't skewed by diversity. Um, they are, but they still heavily weight, at least until recently. And this is going to be this is really the last two years sort of thing. They very heavily weight uh, GPA and SAT scores. <laughs> well, hopefully they keep that up. And if not, I mean, but eventually there will be a demand for this. Like if the U.S. news completely abandons that, then there will, somebody will replace it and actually put out the real, you know, the real rankings because I mean, employers need it, right? <laughs> like if, if they're not allowed to select, you know, and test their own kids or test their potential new employees and the necessary, in the way that actually reveals confidence and they're going to, they're going to, they're outsourcing that job to the universities and that's also outsourcing the job of the U.S. News and World Report in terms of sorting the university quality and the relative quality of the students that are coming through. So, you know, some, it's, it's, something has to give, uh, you know, and, and I think eventually, I mean, I, I think that's actually the long-term hope. Like, as much as we've, you know, the, the thesis that, oh, these young kids won't have an impact on the real world has not borne out because, boy, has the real world seemed to look a lot more like a college campus in the past decade. Um, there are still some businesses that need to make money like normal businesses and they need competent staff. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never been particularly co uh, comforted by that argument about eventually you make contact with reality. Uh, it can take a very long time to make contact mm -hmm. with reality, particularly in a country as wealthy as the United States, right? It took the Soviet Union 70 something years, a lifetime uh, to make mm -hmm. contact with reality. And, uh, you know, the, Currently, the things are going the opposite direction, right? We in the news we have airline companies promising to uh, perfectly quotaize their their pilot yeah. roster, right? Uh, and I've, I've talked to Aaron Sabarium about this, but the the idea of planes falling in, out of the sky is very instructive here. It's hard to pinpoint a general decline in competency to this kind of racial discrimination, for example, or the decline of universities. If you take the concrete example of planes falling out of the sky, which if you have less competent pilots and you don't select for competence, obviously air travel is going to get more dangerous. But with technology and the number of crashes per year being very low, I mean, OK, maybe you get two crashes a year instead of one. Each one has a whole series of systemic failures that leads to a crash. It's actually quite difficult, particularly if it's politically incorrect and you can lose your job for pointing out that in fact, competency and hiring played into it. It's not as, even though abstractly, it's easy to talk about, oh, like, obviously, if you don't hire for competence, you will, stuff won't work, right? That right. um, it, it's often in any particular instance, particularly when people have an incentive, a political incentive to ignore it, it's hard to pin down. Yeah, it's a very scary feature of modern life. There's no, there's no two ways around it. I don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> like, I, I mean, 
I have ideas to solve some of these problems like on the margins, but boy, solving the core problem of core competency in America life and the decline of competency, it's a scary thought. Like I don't, I don't want us to turn into like South Africa, you know, and the basic things don't work. And, you know, there's, it's like people abandoning skyscrapers because the knowledge and competence necessary to maintain a skyscraper just isn't there. Things like, I mean, it's like decivilization. I think one of the things I actually think a lot about, um, you know, especially from the right is the idea of unsolving problems. You know, I mean, the, the most, the simplest idea is, you know, human society had solved the problem of defecation on the streets 2000 years ago. And somehow we've unsolved that problem in San Francisco. Um, and it feels like in a lot of different ways, like modern progressivism finds ways to unsolve long solved problems. Yeah, no, I, I really agree with that creeping sense of, I like the word decivilization that you used. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems like we're reverting to a more primitive form of civilization. Recently, I've observed this, um, particularly in the realm of information even, right? So mm -hmm. where our institutions of disseminating knowledge, whether it's universities like we've been talking about or the media or whatever else, those institutions are so untrustworthy now that we have to revert to a more primitive form of actually learning and, and passing on information where we really only trust those things we can directly observe or somebody that we trust has directly observed. Um, we really have this devolution away from institutions, which I know, you know, folks in our, uh, our orbit, obviously we cheer people realizing that the current institutions are broken, but it, it does mm -hmm. highlight the necessity and the importance of institutions, period, right? Not the ones that we have, because unfortunately, they don't deserve that kind of trust. But it is a real issue uh, when you can't, you can't essentially go beyond your personal circle or your personal circle of trust and can't build on or rely on information um, beyond that. You know, like, I, I do feel I feel like we're devolving, we're, we're decivilizing. Yeah, no, Ryan Holiday wrote, you know, a very good book about that. Uh, trust me, I'm lying, at least in regards to news. And, you know, we, we see clickbait headlines now. And that used to be in the very old days before the rise of subscription newspapers, that was how news was done. You know, people would, you know, have a completely misleading headline and sell their newspaper on the corner and shout out the misleading, attractive headline to get people to throw down the nickel or whatever to buy by the broadsheet. Um, and it was the rise of subscription newspapers that built a reputation that put an end to that. But the move of all the newspapers online and the difficulties of monetizing um, those newspapers has led to the return, led to the return of clickbait um, and the reduced quality of news. And even if, you know, per, you know, these newspapers were, you know, wearing their reputations as a skin suit or something that, you know, they've been swallowed by the left. It doesn't mean we're, you know, we're all better off because we now realize that. Um, and, and it would still probably be better if we had reliable institutions. Good institutions are a good thing. I would love to have a New York Times that was accurate and reliable and non-biased. That would be good for the country. We don't have it. Yeah. I'd be remiss if I let you go um, without noting this This week, obviously, we had the passing of a, a giant of foreign policy, um, Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a particularly interesting moment where the Republican Party um, does not have, doesn't, of course, doesn't have a Kissinger uh, or anyone of that stature, but doesn't even really have a anything close to a unified vision for foreign policy. Instead, it, it seems like there are dueling factions um, mm -hmm. at the even at the establishment level, and then among voters, there's either disinterest entirely, or um, they're they're sort of like kind of impulses, but aren't, aren't solidified into an actual vision. Kissinger obviously was very famous for his realpolitik and, and for being allergic to moralization in foreign mm -hmm. policy to the extent that he, you know, didn't want to have, um, didn't want to have Solzhenitsyn visit the White House for fear of, of sort of offending the Soviets, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Reagan came in and had a very strong moral vision about the Soviet Union, calling them the evil empire. And it turned out that, in fact, uh, that was a powerful vision for foreign policy and a successful one. Um, that, I guess, the, the way that I think about it, at least, and maybe you can disagree, that devolved uh, during the Bush years into something that was so moralistic as to imagine that we could replicate Madisonian democracy 
in, mm-hmm. um, you know, <laughs> relevantly for recent times in, in, um, in uh, Gaza, right? Uh, there, there was an election that brought Hamas to power. And then, of course, our adventurism in Iraq and Afghanistan and attempts to build democracy uh, in, in Iraq and, um, and to, I don't even want to call it an attempt to build democracy in Afghanistan because it was so far from fruition there. But, um, you know, where does the passing of Kissinger leave us at this moment, at the age of 100, right? Um, where does it leave Republican foreign policy. We've got these conflicts. The world seems increasingly on fire. Um, what do you think a Republican foreign policy vision looks like at this point? I mean, it it depends on, you know, we're still at a tipping point where the party where we don't really know where the party is going to go. And in particular, 2024, you know, could shape that. I mean, Donald Trump is more identified with the kind of restraint side of the Republican foreign policy establishment. But if he loses by 10, I wouldn't be surprised to see the, neo, the neocons return to control of the Repub- of Republican foreign policy. Like you see everybody lining up behind Nikki Haley, all these, pe- these people who, you know, Jen Rubin, Paul Ryan, people like that. Nikki Haley's basically already articulating a, you know, full-throated, hyper-aggressive, you know, pro-regime change type policy. Uh, I mean, be a disaster if she was there. But I think, you know, obviously... The, the kernel, current internal structure dispute in the party between the sort of interventionist and restraint wings is kind of the, the fight that should have been had 10 years ago um, in the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, but was sort of delayed by the failure of, or, or basically the, the what felt like the lock that the Bush advocates had on the party, right? There was a period there, especially during Obama, where it felt like you know, Ron, Ron Paul was a clearly marginal figure uh, and people like Bill Kristol were still dominant in the party, still had, you know, you couldn't go against the weekly standard, couldn't go. National Review was still the, you know, the primary voice and and Trump's election, to his credit, completely shook that up. I mean, he was the person, you know, the real thing that demonstrated his power. And the thing that turned Bill Kristol against him was not, you know, any of his personal peccadilloes. It was when Donald Trump got on stage in the South Carolina debate. And told Jeb Bush that his brother lied us into Iraq. Um, that was the final straw for Bill Crystal, and it was the thing that led to the neocon opposition to Trump. Um, that said, Trump didn't really run a particular. I mean, he ran something of a restraint-filled foreign policy in the sense we didn't get any new wars, but he had John Bolton in the administration, which was and doing weird things, and had some bizarre adventures in Venezuela, like the attempt to. Um, basically used diplomacy alone to declare a new president of Venezuela, which was very bizarre. Um, so, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm kind of rambling a little bit here, but uh, I think, you know, yeah, we don't have a Kissinger right now. That's true. We could use a Kissinger. I th- think, you know, Kissinger would be more aligned with the realists and the restraint people. Um, and and hopefully, you know, we prevail in this fight. I think, you know, sort of independently a pitch for my old boss. This is, you know, this is a big reason I worked for Governor DeSantis. I think that Governor DeSantis re- represents the entrenchment of the restraint view of foreign policy um, in the party. Because if it's just Trump, if Trump is the only guy who's ever won on this, then it's easy to knock it as a one-off. But if DeSantis wins on a basically a restraint platform against somebody like Nikki Haley, and then he goes ahead and wins the presidency and holds it for eight years, that will be essentially the permanent reshaping of Republican foreign policy in the right direction. It's interesting. This is where I think I, I partially, at least partially disagree with you. I mean, I think that's what I liked about Trump is that he didn't have uh, a unified, strong view on foreign policy and sometimes like read with him very much. And then sometimes even the things that I really didn't like instinctively didn't like about him um, I had to reconsider. So, uh, for example, one of the things that was at a gut level, I just I despised right when he was a candidate in 2015, all the way through his presidency, was Donald Trump's willingness to lend the um, credibility of talking to the U.S. president to mm-hmm. dictators all over the world, great and small, um, willing to praise them. Uh, say nice things about them, all of these things. Um, I hated that about him. And mm-hmm. yet I, I cannot say that his brand of sort of personal reliant, personally reliant foreign policy wasn't successful in many ways, right? That that, that kind of, uh, it reminded me that foreign policy is not a set of, and, and this would be something very much in line with, with Kissinger's 
wisdom mm-hmm. that he was trying to disseminate in diplomacy and elsewhere, um, that the personalities in the room matter very much. That it, at the yeah. end of the day, the foreign policy may be more um, what is made by the individual personalities who are sitting in a small room away from the public than it is a doctrine about um you know, whether it's the U.S. is more interventionist or more restrained. Um, but but I am, the, the point where I was, so I, I was um, in favor, well, first I was against the Iraq war because I was in high school. Uh, and I was, yeah. You know, but when I, when I let's say around college or, or a little after my early 20s, um, I, I, I wasn't against the war in Iraq. Um, and I've had to, to sort of reconsider why, why it was such a failure. So mm-hmm. first, I thought about you know Vietnam, which I still I still think um, is in part a, a failure of the American people. Um, mm-hmm. In other words, there wasn't a military failure in in Vietnam, but a political one and, and a choice on on our part. We we could have won that war um, and didn't. So uh, first, I thought, well, maybe this is one of those those instances. But the fact that it dragged on so long is contrary to that, right? Like mm-hmm. after twenty years, you have to show something. It's sort of fair enough. It may, there may be a problem of democracy sticking with a foreign policy, but we did stick with this for mm-hmm. 20 years with with very little result. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, I think where I really break now from my former views and what is, I mean, the term neocon is at this point like so broad as to to be almost That's true. Ruthless, it, is, but, it has lost some meaning for sure. But but the thing that um, I've really broken with in that vision of foreign policy is exactly the Wilsonian component of it. The uh, the idea that in every human heart, I'm paraphrasing George W. Bush here, in every human heart, the flame of liberty resides or some such nonsense, right? Um, that, But that hasn't necessarily made me less interventionist. It has made me a little bit more realpolitik, a little bit more less moralistic, um, in terms sure. of, of American foreign policy. So to my mind, the error was not even perhaps, and I, I, you know, perhaps going into these countries and executing American interests, but not leaving or, or for example, not installing a pro-Western autocrat, uh, trying to, uh, you know, trying to, to turn them into yeah. a Madisonian democracy. In other words, it, it doesn't necessarily argue for more restraint. It could argue simply that we should be more Kissingerian and we should just not care about, uh, you know, if, if somebody is our, our friend, we should prop them up, like thinking about somebody like the Shah of Iran, right? Um, or, or it, it, and if somebody is our enemy, we should undermine them um, and, and not have so much concern for, I don't know, democracy or, or uh, kind of moralistic vision. But of course, Reagan didn't, didn't agree with that and argue with Henry Kissinger about it, that America... The Americans have to see themselves as the good force in the world or they, they won't support it. I, I mean, I think there's definitely truth to that. I think I think the you know, the balance there is just to the realization that we're never just we shouldn't be trying to build governments in our own image. That, that That's especially in places that don't have our sense of traditions. I think Yoram Hazoni has actually written really well on this topic where he talks about that, you know, that our you know, different national governments arise out of a cultural fabric and simply transplanting one government to a, a alien culture. Why would you expect that to work? You know, there's a whole lot of under underlying understanding and cultural norms that, you know, make that government make sense for a particular people or a particular place. Um, that said, I agree with you on the point that it's like people go way too far with the non-interventionist stuff. Like I saw, I remember arguing with people on Twitter um, about, Afghanistan and people saying our going into Afghanistan was a mistake. And I'm like, no, the nation building component of that, the attempt to build a new Afghan government was silly, but we certainly had a casus belly to go into Afghanistan and kill Al Qaeda and kill Osama bin Laden after 9-11, obviously, right? That couldn't be left to go unanswered. We had to go, we had to do something about that. Otherwise we'll have planes being flown into our buildings all the time. People need to regret doing that. Um, and, you know, honestly, a punitive raid against Saddam for various things he tried to do in the past. I mean, at one point he tried to assassinate uh, George H.W. Bush, if, is my understanding. Um, and, you know, you can I, I'm all for sort of punitive raids that essentially force, uh, you know, governments to respect and fear the power of the United States. That's a good thing. That's something any great power should be willing to do. Um and, you know, we talked about earlier, but, you know, that's that's the issue that's kind of popping up in Yemen where the Houthis are all of a sudden shooting missiles at 
American destroyers or nearly an American destroyers. That should that should that warrants a military response. That's why you have a military in the first instance. Um, but I think I mean I think that is still substantially less interventionist because it's not a it's not saying you know we're gonna be focused on whether you know you have a non democratic government and ensure that you know after our intervention you do. I think that's not a compelling reason for us to invade. And I think it's I think the morality of it that I think makes makes sense to most Americans is like well we're I mean we're going to support our allies the people who are our friends. Um, and we're going to retaliate against those who invade our interests. And that still makes us the good guy, right? We're still the shining beacon on the hill of, you know, in inspiring to other people. But no, we're not going to sit around and try and do regime change. And that, and that isn't necessary to have moral values in your foreign policy. On, on that synthesis and note, um, Will Chamberlain, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Where can people read your stuff? Oh uh, uh, yeah, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Will Chamberlain. Also, you know, I'll plug the new Substack, which isn't started yet, but it will be. It will be like today or tomorrow. Uh, WillChamberlain.com. It's going to be a Substack. I'm going to talk about how much Nikki Haley is terrible. That's the first article, and then we'll, we'll keep going from there. Um, that's great. I'll be I'll be checking in on that Substack. Thanks again for joining High Noon, Will. All right. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon. All right.